The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. And as we enter into this passage of Scripture, let us just pause for just a moment to pray. Join with me in prayer. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see what you have for us in this passage that we consider today. Lead us into this text. Show us what you have for us and then lead us forth from this text as your people, as the people of the kingdom of God in this world. Amen. Well, there is this wonderful moment in each weekly episode of one of my favorite TV shows, Extreme Makeover, Home Edition. Are you surprised that I'm a big fan of that show? I I only watch it to see how professionals use a hammer. That's the only reason why I really watch it. Well, if you're not familiar with the program, I can thumbnail it for you. There's this... Each, each week, the, the hour-long show features an architectural design team that, that goes to the home of a family that is facing some significant life challenges. And the thing that each family each week has in common is that they live in a nearly dilapidated home. And here's how the program flows. At the beginning of the program, you meet the family. You get a tour of their nearly condemned home. The family's sent off for a week's vacation. There's a huge pep rally of the local builder and the hundreds of volunteers that are coming together to rebuild this home. There's a dramatic demolition scene. And then through the miracle of time-lapse photography, you see the home literally coming up out out of the ground as it's being built. Then to great fanfare, the furniture arrives, and finally the family returns home. And they they pull up in this stretch limousine and they pile out in the street in front of their home, but there's this big bus that stands. It's parked right between them and their new home. And this bus is the object of this wonderful moment. You know what I'm talking about, right? And the family is coached to give the command, Bus driver, move that bus! And on command, the bus roars to life and it rolls away. And the family sees their new home for the first time. Jaws drop, knees buckle, tears flow, including mine, every single time. I am a blubbering idiot at that, at that moment in the, in the show. It's a moment of exceptional revelation. It's an apocalypse. It's an enormous unveiling, and there before them in wood and paint and sheetrock and concrete stands an extravagant resolution to their crisis. And the book of Revelation in many ways is just like that. It's a masterful unveiling. Fundamentally, it's the story of Jesus Christ, but this is a different story than we're used to hearing. It's a story that projects its action on a cosmic screen and depicts a fundamental battle between good and evil. The story is conveyed with such magnificence that jaws drop, knees buckle, tears flow, sometimes at the sheer challenge of trying to figure out what the heck it all means. And to the first century Christians then who heard this apocalypse and to modern Christians who hear it today, this elaborate unveiling reveals an extravagant resolution to the crisis that we find ourselves in. It's been said that the book of Revelation doesn't mean what it says, 
It means what it means. And therefore, those who seek its meaning must be, those who seek the meaning of this text must read it with humility. And not just a little imagination and a spirit of discernment. Now, scholars suggest that the book of Revelation is is an account of John's witness that is told in three spiraling movements. And in this sermon series entitled The Letters to the Church of Seattle that we've been focused on, we're, we're looking at the first movement of John's vision, the letter to the seven churches. And so today we dive into the letter to the church in Philadelphia in chapter 3. It's a letter of great encouragement to the Philadelphians, and at the same time, it's a letter of significant challenge and opportunity to us today. So as has been our custom in this series, let's turn to the text and let's stand together, and you can find the text, Revelations chapter 3, on page 996 in your pew Bible. Let's stand and we can read it together. And at the end of the reading, I'll pronounce, this is the word of the Lord. And if you agree, then you can say, thanks be to God. So let's read it together, starting at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shall shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear listen what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, for the time is near. Please be seated. In the midst of all this curious and perplexing symbolism, the core message of this letter to the Philadelphians is sheer encouragement. It's a message of embrace and affirmation. Notice that like the letter to the church in Smyrna, there is no warning, there is no reprimand. These folks needed to be encouraged. The Philadelphians are commended here for their patient endurance, for their hanging on, for their dogged resistance to the forces that were beating them down. 
And at root here, there's a hint that what the Philadelphians were really struggling with was their sense of identity. They lived under the oppression of a strong, closely knit Jewish community. And this Jewish enclave claimed favored community status in the eyes of God and in relationship to the Roman Empire around them. And in the, in, in the context of this hostility and dominance, the insidious question arises in the midst of the Philadelphian church. Whose side is God really on? Who are the true believers here in this place? Perhaps we're the lesser children of God. Do I really belong And the answer to this question is clear. It's unmistakable. Jesus' unambiguous message to the Philadelphians is this. He says, I hold the key of David. I am the keeper of the kingdom. I can open the door of the kingdom and I can shut it. And you Philadelphians, listen. To you, the door is open. Come on in. He promises to demonstrate his love to them in such profound ways, it will clearly distinguish who is true and who is false. And then in his promise to them that it climaxes in verse 12, he says, I will make you a pillar in the temple, an immovable object situated there in the presence of the Holy One. The vulnerable are made invulnerable. Those who are on the outside looking in, the ostracized, the oppressed, These are the ones who are brought in and given a permanent place before God. And finally, right in the climax, in the final verses, Jesus says, I will write my names upon you. The name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my new name. And these names are markers that indicate to whom these Philadelphians belong and the nature of their belonging. These beloved children of God are given new names. These patiently enduring believers are promised a new identity. They bear the name of God as a badge that identifies them with who they belong. They wear the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, as a symbol that they are a people on a journey with a resolved destiny. Their future is not in question. They are pilgrims on the way to God's fulfillment of human history, symbolized by the New Jerusalem. And their lives are not meaningless. They're not static. They are called to participate with God in the coming of his kingdom. And then finally, it says here that they are given Jesus' new name. Now, this is a mysterious marker. And I'm not, it's not obvious what the meaning of it is, but I think what it means is that this new name that signifies that the community who bears its name is in the process of transformation. That change is occurring in them and among them. And in the words of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the uh, Corinthians, and he and we who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The name of transformation. Well, living in the context of extreme hostility and oppression made them question their identity, made them question their sense of belonging. And Jesus' letter is a revelation that conveys an extravagant resolution to their crisis. He proclaims 
an extreme makeover. And in his authority as the one who holds the key to the kingdom, he proclaims to them that a door is open to them that no one can shut. His message is clear. He says, come on in. You belong. Do you ever find yourself wondering whether or not you belong or to whom you belong? Do you find yourself on the outside looking in? Are you the victim of your own or others' incriminations that leave you feeling disqualified, isolated, alienated? As you know, after each of the five services here at UPC, we invite individuals forward for some personal prayer time. And I always consider it an incredible privilege to enter into that space with folks. And periodically, there are a couple themes that I hear from people, themes that come forth that indicate that, that there are questions that people have with regards to who they are and to whom they belong. There are some believers who come and share that they're under spiritual persecution, that they, have their, that they have thoughts that oppress their spirit. And because of that, they wonder if they are really Christians at all. They find themselves adrift in self-doubt and fear. There are others who are plagued by self-recrimination because of a choice that they've made, a choice that has led to significant failure in their life. They've blown up their marriage through their infidelity. They... They are gripped with some addiction or they've, they've chosen a life path that has led to just ruinous outcomes and they feel utterly a failure. They believe that they, are un, that they have committed acts that are unforgivable, that they are unlovable in some way. And Jesus says to us, listen, I hold the key to the kingdom of God. And for you, I've opened the door that no one can shut not your self-doubt, not your fear, not your failure. Hold on. You belong. And as you persevere, he says, I'll make a pillar out of you, a strong tower, an iron rod. And I'll write our names all over you. You'll be marked with my character. And even in the midst of your suffering, you'll be so identified with me that you'll be a witness to all who experience you near and far. Do you need that word of encouragement? Well, it's right here in the letter to the Philadelphians. And it's addressed to each one of us as well. Now, that's one way to hear this letter. But there's another way. Just as a door swings open to take us in, it also swings open to send us out. Just as we're embraced and invited into the community of God's people, we are also sent as a community to become agents of the kingdom. There's a pivot point here that we can't ignore. And while there's a unique message to the Philadelphian community in the particular situation that they find themselves in, there's another message here that first century Christians then and 21st century Christians today would hear in the message of the open door. And that message is an invitation to move out in witness. What an incredibly challenging time to hear that message. If there was ever a time in our contemporary history to hear that message and respond, it is now. I recently celebrated my 50th year on this planet. Did I just say that out loud? 
Did I just confess before God and all of you that I'm 50 years old? That's been a really tough number for me to embrace. I gotta, I gotta confess. I haven't quite come to terms with that yet, but I digress. <clears throat> in my 50 years here, I can't think of a period in my life that is more challenging socially, intellectually, spiritually than the times we live in today. Think about it. The macro challenges presented in our national life and in our global responsibilities are unprecedented in my lifetime. And the micro challenges of enormous personal loss, of unmitigated uncertainties, of sheer vulnerability in the lives of individuals and families, well, these are daunting beyond what we've ever seen in our lifetime. We are just now seeing the preliminary realities of a wholesale cultural shift. People are recalibrating their life's trajectory. They're recalculating their life prospects. They're reconsidering their sense of value and where they go to find it. And the critical question in the course of this crisis has been, where's the bottom? But I submit to you that the essential question in these times is, where's the center? What or who will serve as the axis on which we can reorient our lives, in which we can place our hope, in which, from which we can renew our sense of purpose, our sense of meaning, our sense of direction. And brothers and sisters, with all due respect to other faith systems and philosophies, and with an appropriate sense of humility, acknowledging that we see through a glass dimly, we must confess, we must face up to, that we know the answer to that question. Where is the center? Now, the natural inclination in times like this is to retreat, to withdraw, to play defense, to conserve, to patiently endure, to hold on as long as our dwindling hope in our 401k will allow us. Yet here, in this letter to the Philadelphians, in this letter to the church in Seattle, there is this clear call. He says, I hold the keys of the kingdom of God, and I set an open door before you, and no one can shut it. These words come to me, and I can't help but hear all kinds of scriptural echoes. My mind races to the scene recorded in Matthew 16. Jesus pulls together his friends and conducts a little focus group. He asks them the question, who do people say that I am? And they discuss that for a little bit, and then he has a follow-up. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, being the shy and retiring type, steps into that question. <clears throat> he says, you are the Messiah, the only begotten Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him for that response. He says, you know, no, no, no person could have told you that. That came directly of wisdom from my father. And he says, Peter, you're a rock. And on you, I am going to build my church, and the very gates of hell aren't going to be able to stand up to that. And you know what? I'm going to give you the keys of heaven, and what you bind on earth, I will bind in heaven. And what you unleash or unloose, set loose on earth, I will set loose in heaven. The keys of the kingdom. And then my mind goes to the scene at the end of, of Matthew where Jesus is, the resurrected Jesus is sharing a fish dinner on the beach with his friends and he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. The keys of the kingdom are mine. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then my mind goes to the first chapter of Acts, where Jesus says in his final words, he says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. The door is open. And if there was ever a time to step through it, to step out, it is now. But what does it mean to step out as a witness of the kingdom? We could do a whole series on witness, but but let me suggest that this letter to the Philadelphians provides a key insight to what it might mean to move out as a witness to the king and his kingdom. The critical clue is right here in the opening of the letter. Jesus claims to have the key of David, to be the one with sole authority to open or shut the door of the kingdom of God. Therefore, as it pertains to the call, our call to witness, that call begins with Christ's authority and it begins with his initiative. The primary movement of witness is Jesus's, not ours. The preliminary movement. And therefore, the action of witness that is suggested here is a sort of poised readiness, a spiritual alertness that makes us responsive to God's orchestration around us. And so witness begins with a sense of hesitancy and expectancy. We wait upon God, seeking signs of his movement amongst us. It's a sort of what I would call the condition of attentive availability. And this condition of attentive availability requires a spirituality of constant prayer. But not the kind of prayer that likely dominates our prayer life. The prayers that are composed of our latest laundry list of issues and needs that we want God to act upon. Now, let's be clear. God invites that prayer. That's a totally valid kind of prayer. God invites our laundry lists of prayer. But the prayer of attentive availability is the constant prayer of asking God what he's up to. A prayer that seeks insight into his initiative in the world around us. And this is the sort of prayer that often gets answered through a sense of conviction about something that leads us into some sort of engagement in our world. And often that engagement, that that movement into becoming available to God's initiative is the very stuff of witness. At times that response to God's initiative may be very momentary, very temporary, as we enter into a relationship with someone who needs care, who needs God's love, who needs attention. And sometimes that response to God's initiative is a long obedience in the same direction as we engage a cause or make a commitment to a person over a long period of time or make a commitment to a people over the long haul. And that spirituality of attentive availability is not an individual spirituality only, but also it's a spirituality that engages the whole church community. As a community, we seek to understand where God is moving in our city and the broader world and how we can be available to respond to that. We need to constantly be asking the question, what is happening in our community where God would want us to show up? to be present, to represent, to represent the values and to give witness 
to the, to the dynamics of the kingdom of God. Well, my friend and colleague, Mike McCormick Hunnelman, is UPC's director of urban ministries here. And a key aspect of his role is to be attentive to what God is doing in the city. And recently, Mike perceived a strange and perverse, perverse relationship between a series of events. First, he noticed that there had been a significant uptick, a significant increase in gang-related violence and murder, murders of youth in our city. And second, he acknowledged that Mayor Nichols was launching a youth violence initiative that was going to increase attention and funding to proven programs that address the dynamics of youth violence in our neighborhood. And thirdly, he became aware that the youth chaplaincy program that ministers to kids in Seattle's juvenile justice system was at the risk of being discontinued. These events converged for him into a sense of conviction that God was providing an opportunity for this church and that he should make himself available to God's initiative. He saw clearly that these these three different dynamics were connected, that that the juvenile jail is a breeding ground of gang affiliation and and a, a perpetuation of youth violence. And to lose this ministry, the ministry of the chaplaincy that provides alternatives to kids, that gets in their lives and, and gives them different directions, that to lose that would be to head in the wrong direction. So he worked with the leaders of the youth chaplaincy program. He used his influence to bring together other urban pastors and leaders. And they developed a proposal, and they took a place at the mayor's table, and they gave witness that God is relevant and active in the effort to address the senseless loss of life of our city's young people. Does the church really have a role to play in challenging the tragedy of youth violence in our city's urban neighborhoods? Yeah. Yeah, it does. If Jesus places an open door before us, and if we're attentive and we make ourselves available to his initiative, our witness can impact the city. There's a small group of servants here at UPC involved in our UPC AIDS initiative. The whole process of this group has been to actively take steps to be attentive to God's initiative and then to be intentionally available to relationships that God leads us into. It's been absolutely amazing to see how things are developing. And one remarkable development has emerged with our neighbor here just a block away, the University of Washington's Department of Global Health. Now, the story's too convoluted uh, to, to cover today, but the thumbnail version is that God has led us into a matrix of relationships that holds the promise of developing a really meaningful partnership between UPC, the University of Washington, and the Orthodox Church in Ethiopia. And that partnership has the purpose of meaningfully expanding the education and prevention of HIV infection and to improve, significantly improve care and reach of care to those who suffer in isolated villages in rural Ethiopia, those who suffer HIV and AIDS. Now, is this really something that a local church in Seattle should be engaged in? Well, yeah. If Jesus is opening the door... And if we're attentive 
and we make ourselves available, then we can have an influence on our neighbor and we can impact the world. This letter to the church in Philadelphia provides us insight into what it means to move out through that door that Jesus opens to his church. And the spiritual stance of attentiveness and availability is the motif of witness. Moving in the ways of attentive availability will lead us out into the world, into boardrooms and classrooms and cafes and pubs and neighbors' kitchens, perhaps halfway around the world. Places where people are desperately seeking the answer to the critical question, where is the center? What really matters? Where is hope? What is my purpose? Does this life have meaning? Let me close with a passage, one of my favorite passages from the book of Jeremiah. And it is a clear exhortation to step up and to step out through the door that Jesus places before us. And I offer this as a word of encouragement and a word of exhortation to each of us. For we know to whom we belong. And by the Holy Spirit, we shall be his witnesses here in Seattle and all of Bellevue and Everett and Renton and to the uttermost ends of the earth. So hear this word from Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, our God, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies. And then walk in it. And then get this, a promise. It says, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, help us to stand at the crossroads. Take us out into the traffic of life. Help us to see. Help us to look. Help us to ask for those ancient paths. Help us to see where your good way lies. And then help us to step into it. Step up to it. Be attentive and available to your work. And God, thank you for the promise that we will find rest for our souls in that journey. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.